We are at the end of the Gospel of Mark. And as we finish out this Gospel narrative of Mark today, there is always a sense of sadness and joy that is mixed into my heart when we finish a book. Listen, we started Mark in November of 2022 and preached 56 total sermons going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and answering three propositions that Mark posed for us through the eyes of the Apostle Peter. Who is Jesus? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And how Jesus becomes King? At the heart of Mark's narrating the earthly life and ministry of Jesus is a question presented to the reader. Who do you say that Christ is? Last week, my friend Byron Potter from First Baptist Spearman quoted the late Dr. Tim Keller from his book, King's Cross, and said, and this is a paraphrase, so if I get it wrong, I'm sorry. He said, Dr. Keller says, you either crown Christ or you kill him. But you can't sit back and just say he was a good man. So look at verse 8 of chapter 16, if you'll turn there with me, Mark chapter 16. Look at verse 8. It says, and they, who would be the women who witnessed the empty tomb, and they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So why are these eyewitnesses to an empty tomb afraid? Also, why would Mark originally end his book this way? It seems so abrupt. This ending seems so abrupt. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ all came true just as he had said, so their reaction is descriptive of what is to come. And it seems as though Mark would end his telling this way as to leave us with the question threaded all throughout his gospel. Here's the question. Do you believe that Christ is the Messiah without physically seeing him, without being an eyewitness to his life, without being an eyewitness to his death, and without seeing his resurrected body. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 17. This is called the High Priestly Prayer. John 17, beginning in verse 20, and these are Jesus' words here. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prayed for us, the future church, there in his high priestly prayer saying, Lord, help them to believe. Father, help them to believe in me, who you've sent. So, As we continue to become students of the Word, or as Martin Luther said, creatures of the Word, there's a a good hermeneutical rule. Hermeneutics just basically means the science of studying and interpreting the Bible. There's a good hermeneutical rule we need to know as we read the Bible as a specific kind of literature or literatures. For the Christian, the Bible should should have kingly authority looking to it for all that we need for life and godliness. 
So when we open and read our Bibles, we, need, we know that God has spoken, and listen, any opinion we have is exactly that, a mere opinion. So if you're a note taker, I want you to get your notes out and note this, okay? Three things, prescriptive, descriptive, and principles. Prescriptive, descriptive, and principles. So let's look at the first one, prescriptive. Prescript, excuse me, prescriptive is much like a doctor's prescription. You take what that verse or passage says and you apply it to your life. For instance, look at 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 6. I've got old eyes, so you'll have to bear with me. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is something we do as Christians, or that particular text, this particular text in 1 Peter is prescriptive. The part that's prescriptive is that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. So secondly is descriptive. This means to describe something that has, is, or will happen. Most of the book of Acts is descriptive. Listen, does God still perform miracles the way he did then, now? I say yes, and I say no. We look to the Acts of the Apostles to inform us about how and what it cost for the gospel to go out into the world after Jesus commanded or prescribed the Great Commission, which we're going to look at today. For instance, look at Romans 16.16. 16. Romans 16.16 16 says this, says, greet one another with a holy kiss, all the churches of Christ greet you. Now, there are some of you men in here, if I walked up to you and planted a big one on you, you would probably leave this church and never come back. So, we see that this was descriptive of the way people greeted each other in that day. Now, there are still people who greet each other this way. Whenever you see uh, Hollywood stars or something, they, they do this fake kiss on the cheek. Paul here is saying, greet each other with affection. Remember that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul is describing for us in that day what the culture did. What we do here is we shake hands or we hug. That is how we greet each other with affection. So lastly is principles. We find these to be the outcome of what God commands or prescribes to his people. Most of the wisdom literature, which would be Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and even some of the Psalms, are principles for life. Look at Proverbs 22.6. Proverbs 22.6, you've probably heard this quoted before. It says, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And this is not saying, Proverbs 22.6 is not saying that if you raise your kids in a godly home, it assures Christian children. This is a principle for life saying that children need direction and discipline. 
And all of this training is so that they don't live lives of destruction and corruption. Listen, church, this is a principle. So this is good for us to know as we grow in knowing and understanding God's holy word, but especially as we look at the last few verses of Mark's gospel. Keep this in mind. Keep these three things in mind as we move forward. Prescriptive, descriptive, and principle. So let's look at our text for today. Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 14. It says, afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Verse 19. So when the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So today's passage is all post-resurrection of Jesus. Jesus lived and experienced all that he did as a real flesh and blood human being, just as you and I are. Tempted with sin, yet sinless he remained. He prophetically spoke of what he would endure in Mark 8 after Peter announces that Jesus is the Messiah that they had been waiting hundreds of years for. Jesus is betrayed. He's arrested. He's wrongfully tried and rejected by men. He is beaten within inches of his life. He's forced to carry his own crossbar to the hill of Calvary and crucified where he is murdered by the Romans in agreement with the Sanhedrin. Jesus dies a physical death in which he bore the death we deserve to die. And he, he was buried in a borrowed tomb where he laid for three days. Then on that Sunday morning, he walked out defeating death, hell, and the grave once and for all for those who would believe in him and those that the Father would give him and who the Holy Spirit would seal for the day of their resurrection. Listen, church, this is the beauty of the gospel. So in the ESV, if you're reading the ESV, which we have some copies back there, and you can also scan the QR code and you can download the ESV app, there is a double-bracketed chunk of verses, verses 9 through 20. And before it, it says this, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. So there's much discussion around the shorter and longer versions of Mark, but we do know this, these last 12 verses can be trusted as they are consistent with the other gospel narratives. Scholars believe that they were later added by the apostles themselves as to keep with the consistency and flow of Matthew, Luke, and John. So this is why it's good for us to read the Gospels in parallel. So this is like, today we're going to be looking at what's like bonus content, okay? So it's like after the credits roll on a movie, then you have the bonus content, okay? So let's look at verses 14 and 15. 
The first word in verse 14 is key as it reminds us that afterward, you see that word there? Afterward, circle it, highlight it, underline it, whatever. Afterward, or after the resurrection of Jesus, he appears to the 11 disciples as they ate together. It says they're sitting and, and eating together. They're reclined at table. And listen, he does not greet them with joy, and he doesn't come and hand out trophies for uh, best disciples. The text says he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart. So Jesus appears to the eleven, and he appears not with a joyful greeting, but with a rebuke. Turn, if you would, in the New Testament to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Listen to what this says. Paul is speaking to the younger Timothy here. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. He says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Listen, church, to rebuke someone is to love them. Are you willing to endure a rebuke from a seasoned Christian who loves you? Are you willing to endure a rebuke from your pastor? A rebuke is about making someone aware of their sin. Listen, church, I am more committed as your pastor to your holiness more than your happiness. And, he, and here's what I want to say. The world, especially here in the West, cares more about your happiness. Just be true to yourself. Just follow your heart. Your truth is your truth. Those are the lies of the world. The Bible says for the Christian, it's holiness over happiness. And this is not a God who's sitting there with his arms folded and he's like, I can't believe you messed up again. This is a God who cares about your sanctification process, the process you are on as a Christian to become and follow in the way of Jesus. Could you? If the pastor called you into the office, could you endure a rebuke? This is something that I loved and appreciated about my dad. My dad was my pastor and he was my dad. And sometimes he would have to put the pastor hat on and sit down and he would have to rebuke me with truth. Why? Because he loved me. And my dad would often say, when I stop talking to you, when I stop telling you, son, means I don't love you anymore. So be glad that I want to sit you down and I want to tell you the truth. I've done this with my children. I've done this with people here in the church where I've sat, sat them down and had to tell them, look, you're in sin. I love you too much to keep you continuing sin. Could you endure a rebuke? Just like Jesus comes here and he chides them. And this is not like rebuking a demon. He is not condemning them. But he loves them enough to tell them the truth, much like a parent or like the loving older brother that he is to them. And what's the purpose? Yes, holiness over happiness. But it's for not believing those who told them that he had risen. Remember, it was the women who came to tell the disciples that Jesus had risen and how quickly they had fallen into unbelief. And the text says, hardness of heart. 
Look at verse 15. Jesus gives a command here. This is the very purpose of why he came, to send his people out to give testimony of his life, death, and resurrection. Let me ask you this, church. When is the last time you were obedient to this command? When is the last time you sat across from someone and you shared the gospel with them? When is the last time you shared the gospel with maybe your children? When is the last time you shared the gospel with a family member or a coworker or a friend whose life is falling apart? This is what God has called us to. Look, if you would, at Matthew 28. This is known as the Great Commission, which we're looking at today. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But what does that say? But everyone believed rightly, said, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Look at how Jesus' book ends that. He says, all authority has been given to me and I will be with you always. This is what I want you to do. This is what I'm prescribing for you. Parents, listen to me. The greatest mission field you have is down the hall. Do you believe that? Or do you just expect the pastor or Miss Morgan to tell your kids the gospel? God has given you children for a reason. The greatest mission field you have is down the hall. And listen, they are watching your life. They are watching the congruency that happens here and happens at home. Husbands, your kids are watching how you talk to your wife. Do you talk down to her? Do you belittle her? You can count on it, you can bank on it, that if you continue to do that, your children will speak the same way to their spouses. Let's look at verses 16 to 18. This is where things get somewhat concerning for some of us who grew up in church or at least have some idea of church and what it can become. Look at verse 16. It begins with a gospel uh, imperative. He says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. These are stark, contrasting realities. And listen, Jesus is not saying those who are baptized are saved. He's saying that those who follow through in baptism are saying they have been saved and made Christ their confession. They are being obedient to what God has commanded and following in the example of Christ. We saw, that, saw this excuse me, at the beginning of Mark where Jesus is baptized. If it was true that baptism is necessary for salvation, the second part of verse 16 would say this, those who are not baptized will be condemned, but it's not there. Jesus is simply saying that those who believe will follow my example and those who don't will have no righteousness but their own. And listen, our own righteousness is not enough. Just like Kristen was praying just a few minutes ago, 
We need our righteousness outside of ourselves. We need to be justified before God. And the only place we find that is in the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his grave-robbing resurrection. That's where we find righteousness. So let's look at verses 17 and 18. And these verses make me nervous, okay? I'm just putting that out there. When I was in high school, I dated a girl who was part of a rather rowdy, charismatic church here in town. She invited me to a revival, quote unquote, uh, that they were having at their church. And while the preacher, this is what they call it in charismatic churches, while the preacher was shouting down heaven, that's what he's, that they, they call it, a lady behind me, she was sitting behind me, started laughing uncontrollably. And I couldn't get out of there quick enough as I was certain the snake handling would be next. And she didn't know this until later. My, this girl that I was dating at the time, she didn't know this until later. But the church my dad pastored split, had a really nasty church split about 10 years earlier due to the charismatic movement. So it was triggering for me, and it still can be when I see some of this on TV or even on social media. So this is why, church, this is why I opened the sermon the way I did. This is why we need prescription, description, and principles, okay, when we're interpreting God's word. They matter when reading and interpreting the scriptures. And it's clearly said in these verses, it's clearly said, these signs will accompany those who believe, okay? So I'm going to ask Matt to go get the snakes out of the off. No, I'm just kidding. We don't have any snakes today. Next week. <laughs> Next week, yes. <laughs> so the question is, who are those that believe? Who are those that believe that Jesus is speaking here? Is it anyone that believes that the signs will accompany? I don't believe the Bible teaches that. These 11 men will go out to preach, teach, heal, and deliver. And later, Paul is added to these men, and he's bit by a poisonous serpent in Acts 28 and is not harmed. So listen. This is descriptive to what will soon take place in the Acts of the Apostles. And verse 20 verifies this. Look at verse 20 of Mark chapter 16. It's the last verse. It says, And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by what? Accompanying signs. Okay? So, the question is, can God still work wonders like this through those who believe? Yes. God can do whatever God chooses to do. Does he choose to still do this the way we see it in the book of Acts? The consistent witness of scripture is that these signs stopped when the apostles died. Yes, listen church, before you lose me, before you get angry, before you get the email ready, God is a miracle-working God. Yes, we should pray for healing. Yes, we should pray for freedom. But, listen, look at me for just a moment. Is it all done through the lens of being submitted to God's will? That no matter what, even if God chooses not to heal, are we still submitted to God? And please don't hear, church, that we're a church that won't pray for healing or, or any of those things. 
If you come to, ask, to us and ask for prayer, we will physically lay hands on you and pray for healing. And we will commit to praying for you. And listen, church, we have seen God heal, and we've seen him set free many times in just the last three years we've been a church. And we hope that he continues to do so. So do we understand, listen, we need to say all this in this context. Do we understand what the greatest miracle is? Salvation. That's the greatest miracle is salvation. And it was all accomplished by Jesus and is applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit because of the great love of the Father. Listen, the accompanying signs confirmed the message of the gospel. What was happening physically is what happens spiritually. Look at me for just a moment, church. The greatest miracle to happen is that you were once dead and now you're alive because Christ, the Holy Spirit, quickened in you new life. He removed your heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. He gave you a birth from above. Without God giving us faith, we would never be able to believe. That is the greatest miracle, church. Let's not get bit bogged down on, on just these verses that say, oh, well, I'm gonna go get, I'm gonna go catch a rattlesnake and I'm gonna see if, if God's true to his word. This is why we need prescription, description, and principles. And listen, church, here's, here's where I get, I get kind of riled up, you know, and you're, some of you are hearing me preach for the first time today and you're like, you mean you're not already riled up? But listen, listen, I would believe that these, like a lot of these signs were coming true today if the gospel was going out at a quicker pace. But some of us can't even sit across from a family member and share the gospel. Why would God entrust us with something uh, to, to heal or to deliver or something like that if we can't even articulate the gospel to a family member or to a coworker that we worked, for, worked with for many years now? Some of you guys go to work, some of us go to work and people would have no idea that we're Christians. We need to understand that this is about the gospel going out. This is not about physical healing. This is not about freedom from addiction or any, those things are great, yes, and I believe God does those things today. But I believe first and foremost that it's about the gospel, it's about what's happening spiritually more than what's happening physically. So let's look at the last two verses, verses 19 and 20. And I wanna end our time with verse 19. This seems to be a forgotten element of the gospel, the ascension. The verse says that after Jesus spoke to them or commanded them to go and make disciples, he assures them that he will be with them because the authority needed is now his. And he does something so unbelievably beautiful. Excuse me. Look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 beginning in verse nine. Should be up on the screen for you to follow along. <clears throat> it says, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, 
will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So hundreds of years prior, the ascension of Jesus is prophesied of in Daniel chapter 7. This is the coronation of King Jesus as the sovereign ruler of his people. And it's important to know that he sat and he sits at the right hand of the Father. This shows that he is in the place of power and the fact that he is sitting, listen, the fact that Jesus is sitting is that he has accomplished what he was sent to do. Listen, Jesus is not sitting because he's tired, he's sitting because he's done. So what is Jesus doing now? He's not sitting by and disconnected from your suffering. He is not tapping his fingers and impatiently waiting for the Father to tell him to return. Jesus is not cold or distant or bored. Listen, look at me for just a moment. Jesus is not counting up your sins so he can hold them against you. He is at the right hand of the Father advocating for us. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What Jesus accomplished in our place, he continues to apply by the power of the Spirit in his advocacy for us. For us to know we are forgiven by faith, know we are loved and kept, empowers us to reach our neighbor with the message that changed all of history. The message that Mark presents us with, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Listen church, this is why we gather and this is why we scatter. This is why we want to equip you. This is why we want to lead you. This is why we want to love you. This is why we want to link arms as the people of God with the message of God. So when I do sermon prep, I read out of different translations. And one of the translations that I feel is trusted is one that comes out of Dr. John MacArthur's church, which is called the Legacy Standard. At the end of verse 20, there is a bracketed bracketed section in the LSB that says this. And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus sent out through them from east and west the sacred and imperishable preaching of eternal salvation. Listen, that sacred and imperishable message went west in the planting of churches to arrive one day in the Texas Panhandle for you to hear it and believe it. I remember early on in the days of our core team when we were getting ready to plant this church. It was March of 2020. And I remember thinking, what should we do? Like the the nation basically shut down. The president was on the TV reporting that we need, to, we need to shut down for two weeks. Two weeks turned into four weeks. Four weeks turned into a month. A month turned into two, and on and on and on. 
And I remember someone on our core team coming to me because I could sense that she, was, she knew I was nervous about what was going to happen. And she said, she reminded me so graciously. She reminded me, Ricky, if the church was ravished, ravaged by persecution in the early days of the church, why would the gospel stop going forward because of some disease? That was enough for me that day to remind me what God had called me to do. And that was to plant this church, to equip you, to lead you, to love you, to rebuke you, to link arms together, and to get this message, this sacred and imperishable message to go out, to reach our city, to push back darkness, to gather and to scatter. So as surely as the sun rises, and as surely as the sun sets, listen, look at me for just a moment. The gospel will go forward. The question for us is, will we continue the work? Will we continue the work? I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come up. I want to invite us into this this morning. If you are here this morning and you can't honestly answer the question, are you a Christian? Do I know Christ personally? Have I repented of my sin and placed my faith in the Lord Jesus? If you can't answer that question honestly, then the answer is probably no. You haven't. But listen, you're in the right place. You're in the right place to hear about the perfect life of Jesus, his substitutionary death, his resurrection, his ascension. So the question posed to you today is, who do you say Jesus is? Will you just sit back coldly disconnected and say, well, he's just, just a good man. He's just a good man, kind of maybe like my dad was, or I had a grandpa who was a good guy. That's kind of who Jesus was. He was a good teacher. He was just a good guy. Listen, we will all stand before God one day and have to answer what we did with Christ. We will stand and give an answer to God Almighty. And if you give the answer like, well, I was, I was a pretty good person. I actually came to church a few times. I gave some money and uh, I, I made sure. And when I saw an old lady walking across the street, I helped her across the street. I did good things, God. The answer will be, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. But listen, for those of us who are in Christ, we will hear on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. Why? Because you were good enough? Because you merited it? Because you stood on your own righteousness? No, because we stand on the righteousness of another who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who Mark tells us about in, his, in this gospel narrative. So listen, if you are in Christ this morning, the challenge is set before you. Will we continue the work? I can't go home with you. I can't go to work with you. I can't go to family gatherings with you. I can't go hang out with friends with you unless you invite me. But listen, you are the one God has tasked with this sacred and imperishable message. So we're here for an hour, and then we scatter back out into the world to proclaim the same gospel we just heard. The question is, is it that good of a message to you that we would want the whole world to know? I'll be in the back of the room. We're going to sing in just a moment. If you need prayer, if you need counsel, if you need anything like that, 
It could have nothing to do with this sermon. Please come find me. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to answer any questions that you might have. Let's pray.